Well, hey there, everybody. Welcome to Gather and Go, the podcast that helps you plan, promote, and lead better trips. My name is Brian Jewell, and I am your host. And wow, I am especially thrilled that you decided to spend some time with us today. And as always, our promise to you is we are going to do everything we can to make that investment of your time worth your while. And hey, if you're relatively new to the podcast, or maybe this is the first time you've listened, you might be wondering, well, is this show really for me? And here's what I tell you. If you are a travel professional or even a travel enthusiast who enjoys planning trips, taking people on trips, promoting trips for tour groups, tour companies, people like that, yes, this show is for you. And if you will hang with us, we are going to deliver lots of great content that is going to help you take better trips and build a better travel business. Now, today we are going to do that through a featured interview with Stephanie Miller of The Scenic Suitcase. Stephanie is a travel photographer, and she is going to share some amazing tips that are going to help you take your travel photos from good to great. And of course, you know that uh, that not only helps you have great images to remember your trips with, it also helps you have some great images to market your trips with. So you are not going to want to miss this conversation with Stephanie because it's going to be really helpful for you in your travel organization and your travel business. Before we get into that, though, let's start with some travel news you may have missed. A new survey from NTA, that's the National Tour Association, asked tour operators around the country for their thoughts on a number of issues, including the rising cost of travel. And it won't come as any surprise that 99% of professional tour companies that responded to the survey said that the cost of doing business has increased, quote, exponentially. And 92% expect those costs to continue rising in 2024. The tour operators estimated that the daily cost of a tour in 2023 has increased about 18% over the previous year and about 28% over 2019. Now, when they were asked what tour suppliers can do to help with the problem of rising costs, the tour operators had some suggestions, such as refraining from charging more now to make up for losses during the pandemic, honoring 2023 rates for 2024 programs that are booked now, expanding group rates to include smaller groups, offering better off-season rates, and being considerate of tour operators who want to establish long-term partnerships. Now, we'll link to the full survey results in the show notes so that you can see what the tour operators had to say about other topics, such as staffing challenges, sustainability, booking trends, and more. Well, now it's time for the road tip segment of our show. That's the part of every episode where we dig into our bag of travel knowledge from decades on the road and share some tips that we think will help you plan and run smoother trips for you and maybe for your travelers. You know, I have a bad habit of being ill-prepared for trips that are too close to home. I live in Lexington, Kentucky, and there have been a few times over the years when I have had business in Louisville, another Kentucky city that's about uh, an hour's drive away. And something about that short drive has just made me take the trips, well, a little too casually. I find myself packing at the last minute, throwing some things in a bag and heading off to Louisville. And then more than once, I'm ashamed to say, I have arrived in Louisville and realized that I didn't bring some really essential things that I needed that I probably would have remembered if I had taken the trip a little more seriously. Today, I want to focus on something that happened a few years ago when I had to be in Louisville for one night for an event. 
I packed in a hurry just before I was running out the door. I thought, well, it's just one night. How hard can this be? I discovered when I got to Louisville that number one, I hadn't brought my wallet. And number two, I hadn't brought my charging cable for my phone. And I had to rush off to the event I was going to be at. It was later that night around bedtime when I got back to the hotel. My phone was at like 2%, not a good situation. And I had to be back home in Lexington the next morning, mid-morning, for brunch with some friends. And so I really needed that phone, number one, to be my alarm clock, number two, to stay in touch with my wife, all those things we need phones for. It was bedtime, I was tired, and I was freaking out because I knew I hadn't brought my phone charger with me. So I went down to the front desk and sheepishly explained my situation to the clerk and asked if they had anything that could help me out. And the clerk opened what I can only describe as like a junk drawer somewhere behind the desk. It was probably their lost and found or something like that. And pulled out a little like 12 inch charging cable that thankfully fit my phone. And she said, I can let you have this for tonight. Just make sure you drop it off here tomorrow morning before you leave. Well, that was a lifesaver for me that night. I was able to charge my phone and leave with a full charge, which is good because that wasn't the last of my struggles coming home from Louisville that day. And uh, ask me about it one day. I'll tell you the full story. But it really drove home the point that I need to make sure that I have a phone charging cable anywhere I go all the time. And what I found the best thing to do there is to have a cable that I don't use around the house. In fact, a cable that only stays in my travel bag. And if you are a travel planner, then I would encourage you, number one, to have that cable dedicated in your travel bag. But number two, maybe to have two or three of them in case people in your travel group find themselves in a similar situation. Maybe they forgot their cell phone charger. Maybe they packed it in their Uh, checked luggage and don't have it on hand when they need it in an airport or on a bus or something like that, you can be a real lifesaver by stepping in and providing a phone cable that they will need to stay charged up. So I wanted to take just a second to tell you about my favorite charging cable. In fact, the one I travel with. First unique thing about this cable is that it is 10 feet long. You know, the normal cable that comes with most phones is something like about three feet long, which can be okay if you have Uh, a bed and a bedside table with an uh, electrical outlet right below the table or maybe an outlet in the lamp or something like that. But what I found is that I can't take that for granted at every hotel. And every now and then I find myself in a place where the closest uh, electrical outlet is six, seven, eight feet away from my bed, from the table where I need the phone to be charging. Well, this 10 foot cable solves that problem. I can stretch it halfway across the room, still get a charge, still have the phone where I need it. Super, super helpful. Another thing that I really like about this cable is that instead of being a regular plastic rubberized coating, it actually has a a threaded fabric coating on the outside. Now, um, this is helpful because these kinds of coatings are actually much more durable and they keep chargers from fraying and shorting out. If you've had uh, electronic devices over the years, you've probably had some cables that get shorts in them. Uh, shorts in them. Uh, they don't work well unless you have them at exactly the right angle. And of course, you can't count on that to charge your phone at night. So uh, this woven fabric uh, really helps protect the uh, electrical wiring inside from shorting out. So uh, I can wind this, I can uh, wad it up, I can bundle it, I can throw it in my bag as I have done hundreds and hundreds of times. And I don't have to worry about this cable developing a short that's going to stop it from working. 
Another thing that's helpful about this cable is that it has the uh, traditional USB-A adapter head on it. Now, if you don't know much about USB cables, there are basically two different types out there. Uh, one is called USB-A, and it has the sort of rectangular head that you're used to seeing on most charging cables. Now, there's a newer kind of cable called USB-C that has a smaller head on it with rounded edges. There are some advantages to USB-C, uh, chief among them that they can actually charge devices faster. But when I'm traveling, I like a USB-A head. And the reason why is that there are many places where I might want to charge my phone where there is a USB-A electric outlet, but there is not support for USB-C. You find this in airports. You find it in airplanes. Uh, many motor coaches that have charging stations on the seat backs only have a USB-A outlet. So I love it that this charger has a USB-A head instead of USB-C so that I can charge it anywhere I go and can count on getting electricity when I need it. Finally, the last thing that makes this a great charger for taking on the road is that it is like a neon incandescent blue color. You know, a lot of charging cables are white or maybe black, and that's certainly perfectly fine for use around your home or your office, but I love having a colorful cable on the road for two reasons. Number one is that when I'm packing up and getting out of a hotel room, I'm much less likely to overlook a bright blue cable than something that's white and might blend in with the sheets or something that's black and might blend in with the furniture. I'm never going to miss this blue cable, which means over the seven or eight years I've had it, I have never had to worry about losing it. The other great thing about the blue cable is that if you do lend it out to friends, colleagues, people you're traveling with, customers in your travel group, they are not likely to forget that it's borrowed and hold on to it. They are going to see it. They're going to know it's not theirs. They are going to remember to give it back to you so that you can use it later on or you can lend it out to somebody else who needs it. That is your road tip for the week. Now, before we move on, I want to take just a minute and share a little bit of news from us. Now, you may know our company, The Group Travel Leader, for our podcast, obviously, and our flagship magazine, The Group Travel Leader. But did you know that we also produce a quarterly magazine for faith-based travel groups? That magazine is called Going on Faith. And if you plan faith-based trips, if some of your customers are churches, or maybe you are a travel planner at a church, you're a volunteer or even someone on staff who plans church group travel, this magazine is going to be super helpful to you. Every issue features articles on great faith-based destinations, activities, things that you are going to love. And uh, it is really an indispensable tool for anybody working or volunteering in the faith-based travel segment. Now you can subscribe in print or uh, get on our website, look at uh, just about every article we've ever written there. There are hundreds and hundreds of articles that you're going to love. And while you're there, you can also subscribe to our e-newsletter that comes out monthly. That's called Faith Travel Minute, and it is full of goodies that are going to help make you a better travel planner and promoter in the faith-based market. So you can access all of that on the website goingonfaith.com. Now it's just about time for us to move into our featured conversation with Stephanie Miller. Uh, as we do that, I want to mention a couple of things that are going to be helpful to you. Number one, Stephanie is going to mention a lot of different pieces of equipment, apps, services that could help you improve your travel photography. I am going to take notes on all that for you and post them in the show notes for this episode. So if you're driving, you're working out, something like that, you don't need to worry about trying to capture all this information. 
you can find it in the show notes, which uh, if you get on our website, if you're listening to this episode on our website, the show notes are the text in the post directly below this audio player. If you are listening on an audio app like uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, much of the show notes is going to be directly below uh, this episode in the audio as well. But you can always come to our website, uh, look up this episode, Stephanie Miller, and you're going to find all those resources linked for you right there. Now, before we get into the interview, one last thing. I want to encourage you to stick around until the end of that conversation, because when we come back from that, I am going to get a little bit more into the topic of travel pricing, and I'm actually going to share with you why I am flip-flopping on my advice to travel planners regarding tour pricing. You won't want to miss that. We'll be right back with Stephanie Miller. All right, everybody, I want to take a minute to tell you about Corbin, Kentucky, home to adventure, history, and hospitality. Nestled in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains in southeastern Kentucky and conveniently located off Interstate 75 by the shores of the pristine Laurel Lake, Corbin is the perfect adventure destination. It's home to Cumberland Falls and the only moonbow in the Western Hemisphere. Corbin is also the birthplace of KFC. You can still eat where it all began and tour the state-of-the-art museum to learn the unique history of Colonel Sanders. Stop by Sanders Park and take a selfie with a bronze statue of the Colonel. Then spend a day enjoying the races at Cumberland Run, Corbin's new thoroughbred harness racetrack. And if you're a food lover, Corbin is definitely the place for you. Downtown is full of locally owned restaurants, not to mention lots of great shopping. When you bring your travelers, you'll find a warm welcome because Corbin loves company. To learn more, follow the Corbin Tourism and Convention Commission on Facebook or visit CorbinKYTourism.com. All right, everybody. My guest today is a travel photographer and blogger who helps travel lovers discover destinations and learn how to capture them in engaging images. She's the founder of The Scenic Suitcase, where she shares travel ideas, photography tips, and inspirational images from places such as Cuba, Iceland, and Africa. She's passionate about helping people plan bucket list trips and taking photos that will help them remember those trips for a lifetime. Stephanie Miller, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have you here because travel and photography really go hand in hand, right? I mean, nobody goes on a trip without bringing their camera. Uh, the problem though, is most people, if they haven't taken the time to really learn the fundamentals of photography, most people are really missing out on some opportunities when they travel to capture great photos, or at least I feel like I am. Is that something that you encounter a lot with people you talk to? Absolutely. And it's something that I encountered myself before I really got into photography. I would be taking these trips and I'd look back at photos and there's just so much that I missed. And so um, anything I can do to help people, you know, capture their travels in a meaningful way and an engaging way that they can look back for years to come is something that I'm very passionate about. Awesome. Well, we're going to dig into uh, some of those tips. But before we get there, I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about your origin story in travel, how you got started traveling and how that uh, led to uh, the Scenic Suitcase. 
Sure. So my dad used to travel quite a bit for work. And so he's kind of the one who inspired me to travel in the first place. And um, when I was taking these trips initially, I had a lot of people asking me the same questions between, you know, destination specific questions, as well as just general travel or photography questions. So um, I love travel and writing and graphic design. So it seemed like a natural fit for me to start a travel website and just try to direct people to one place to gather all that information and find inspiration for their own travels as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you started this website. Um, there's a whole learning curve in being a, a blogger, being a travel journalist, running a website, but you also had to learn how to be a photographer because that's not what you were trained for professionally, right? No, absolutely not. I am, I have a degree in advertising and marketing with a minor in business. So nothing to do with photography at all. Um, when I took my first trip to Cuba, I only brought my cell phone with me and certainly had several pictures that were memorable, but um, looking back, I think I could have probably done quite a bit more if I would have had a camera. So I didn't actually have my first DSLR camera until about 2016. Um, And when I first had it, you know, it's like trying to run a space shuttle. I mean, there's so many buttons on those things and it is quite quite a challenge to try to learn them all. So I essentially sat down with a few friends who had DSLR cameras to have them show me the ropes and just the basics of how to use it. And then I uh, engaged in some online photography courses, as well as some Facebook groups that kind of helped, um, you know, give each other tips and, and lend some inspiration to different styles of photography that you could experiment with. So it's been a lot of just trying new things, trial and error and, and mixing it up a little bit. So I wonder if you could uh, tell us what are some of the most common mistakes you see travelers making with photos? Maybe even what were some of the mistakes you were making as uh, someone just traveling and trying to take that photo with your cell phone, as you mentioned? Um, What are the pitfalls that people are always falling into that um, you would love to help them correct? Yes. Um, The number one for me, and this is specific to cell phone photography, but really any photography in general, is clean your lens. When you are taking pictures with your cell phone, so many times I'm watching people do it and they just grab their cell phone, snap a shot, get in the habit of even just wiping it on your shirt, cleaning that lens off because it's going to make it a lot sharper. Um, I guarantee there's fingerprints and God knows what else on your phone. So (laughs) keeping that lens clean is going to make your photos a lot more uh, striking when they're, you know, a little clearer. Um, In addition to that holding steady, a lot of people will just grab their camera or their phone, snap a picture, and they're kind of moving around. And so it makes it, again, not very sharp. So, um, you know, be intentional with your photography. Just hold steady for a second. Clean your lens off first. Uh, Those are the two big ones. And then specifically to travel, um, a lot of things that I see on Facebook or social media accounts is people or groups standing in front of something very impressive while they're in their travels. And it's just them in front of something, which certainly has its place, but let's be honest, it's, it's a little boring. So Mm. you want to mix it up, you know, have different angles where it's a little more natural. Maybe you looking at something and somebody taking the shot from the side or behind you, where it's really more about the environment or the landscape that you're in, or even a piece of architecture or art that you're looking at, that should really be the focus, but you want yourself or others in the photo to engage the the person looking at the photo so that they can envision themselves in that environment as well. So it's it's kind of hard to do or a little boring the way it's done most of the time where people just take a picture in front of something. So really just get a little more creative. Um, there's also, you know, different photography composition tricks that you can try. The rule of thirds is a really common one. So splitting your photo into thirds and making sure your subject is on one of the lines, um, either horizontally or vertically. 
um, leading lines if you're taking pictures of roads or rivers or anything that you can draw your eye into a landscape, engaging those leading lines is a really great way to do that. Um, Another thing that's kind of a pet peeve of mine is is just not being aware of your light source. Mm -hmm. A lot of people will take a picture of something and it's backlit, meaning that the base, basically the sun or whatever your light source is, is behind whatever you're shooting, which when you take a picture like that is blown out. So basically you have the sky and then whatever your subject is, is just black or really aggressive shadow. Um, just make sure you're very aware of where your light source is and try to shoot with the light on your subject as opposed to behind your subject. Um, that's also a pet peeve of anybody in a Zoom call. If you're, <laughs> it's it's this like, you know, witness protection type of effect and it's, it's not great. So um, being aware of your light source is huge. And um, also with cell phone photography, something I learned from one of the National Geographic photographers down in Antarctica is, there's typically, I know on iPhones and most phones these days have multiple lenses. So the iPhone has three. Um, those are standard zoom lenses. So you're regular and then it's got a close up and kind of more of a, a wide angle. Um, when you crop with your finger, so if you're trying to shoot something and you crop in manually, um, that is basically having the camera trying to figure out or crop on the go, which is never as sharp as if you just take it with one of the standard lenses and crop and editing. So mm. that's another thing I see a lot where people's photos really aren't very sharp. And I think it's because they're zooming themselves as opposed to using one of the standard lenses and cropping and editing. So just a few, few tips. <laughs> yeah, those are great. A another one that I seem to see people doing all the time is um, standing just way too far back from the subject. You know, if yeah. they are taking that picture of a friend or a family member, you know, in front of the landmark, they might be standing like seven or eight feet back. And that's yeah. just a completely useless image, right? Like yeah. I've always heard uh, you should almost make the person uncomfortable with how close you're standing to them if you want to get a, a really good photo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, that's, you know, another thing I see is is just this this awkward kind of you know, distance between you and your subject. So either get really close or it is okay to be really far away if you're trying to shoot a landscape and you want the person to provide some scale. So mm. say you're in front of a waterfall or a really beautiful mountain range, having a subject kind of in the front, preferably with a pop of color, like a bright red or bright yellow coat on, can draw your eye to that person, but the landscape looks more, much more immense when you do that. Um, but having it just, you know, eight feet back, that is always a little bit awkward. You either want to be pretty close or pretty far away. So uh, you've talked a little bit about cell phones and you mentioned earlier the DSLR camera, which for people who may not be aware is basically just sort of the professional level camera, the bigger thing with the body and detachable lenses. And, you know, that's what you see any photojournalist uh, traveling and walking around with. So um, explain for people who are novices what the difference is between those two pieces of equipment and maybe help us figure out, hey, I'm taking a big trip to Africa next year. Should I drop another thousand, fifteen hundred, eighteen hundred dollars on a fancy camera when I've already spent, you know, five, six, seven thousand dollars just on the trip itself? Help us kind of figure out the difference and when it makes sense to spend that money. Absolutely. So the biggest difference between shooting on your phone and shooting on a professional or a DSLR camera is the image quality. So um, I always say, and it's a common phrase, the best camera you have is the one that you have on you. So mm. oftentimes that is your cell phone. And there's a lot that cell phones can do these days. So uh, there's certainly not a bad option. But 
If you're shooting wildlife especially, I would highly suggest getting a DSLR camera. Uh, the point being that the zoom on that is going to be a lot uh, stronger. And so if you're shooting wildlife where even if you're on a safari, you know, the w- wildlife is still pretty far off. If you're not shooting with a DSLR, you're going to get really small animals. And if you try to crop or zoom in to see them, they're going to be really pixelated, meaning that um, they're really fuzzy or grainy. So, um, you know, DSLR cameras are not cheap. I mean, they can certainly be more cost effective than others. Um, when I first bought a DSLR camera for my travels, I got a Canon 80D, um, which is 80D. Uh, that's a great beginner camera. There's some scene settings on there that help you if you're not quite sure what to do with your aperture shutter priority, um, which are, you know, just general basics when you get your DSLR, learn about shutter speed, which controls how much motion you're going to see, either really sharp if you're shooting action or kind of fuzzier if you want to get um, light trails, if you're, say, riding with, you know, firecrackers or you want to get those really cool lines that you see with cars on the highway or fuzzy water, um, you know, when the water comes down and it looks a little softer, that shutter speed. Aperture is going to control how much is in focus. So if you want, you know, say a portrait where the person is in focus and the background is blurry, that's called bokeh. You can control that with your aperture versus if you're taking a group photo and you want everybody to be in focus, that's controlled with your aperture. And then ISO, which basically controls how much light is hitting the sensor. So if you're in a really dark environment, you can increase your ISO and that helps you be able to get rid of some of those dark spots or shadows. But it will, the trade-off is you're going to have a little bit more graininess. So those three things are kind of the basics of how to shoot with the DSLR. They sound a lot more complicated than they are, but the Canon ADD kind of does all that heavy lifting for you with those scene selections. So that's a great introductory camera. I got mine on Amazon. You can buy it with a kit. So you get the camera, a couple lenses, your filters, always have a filter on your lens because it's going to protect your glass. Even if it's just a clear UV filter, you want to make sure your glass is protected because the lenses are expensive. Um, It comes with a bag, tripod. So if you buy a beginner's kit, it kind of has everything you need. There's also Rebels on the Canon line. I only shoot on Canon, so that's all I can speak to, but the Rebels are good as well. I just think the ADD is a little bit better with the image quality. The price point isn't a whole lot higher um, and you're just going to get a lot more bang for your buck. So that's what I would recommend for for people who are just starting out. And then sign up for an online photography course. They're really not very expensive. It'll kind of teach you the basics of how to use your camera and just composition and, and editing tricks. And that way you're prepared for your trip. Yeah. Uh, great ideas there. Now you mentioned some other accessories that you said often come with a kit, which is cool, but, uh, there's an endless list of stuff you can get, right? I mean, if you're, if you have a DSLR camera, you can switch out lenses. So some people want their close up macro lens and some people want that zoom lens and, you know, then there's all the filters, uh, the, the ones that are protective and then the ones that do different things, change the look of your photo. Uh, there's the flash, there's the tripod, there's, you know, the, even the, the strap or the harness. So uh, help a traveler figure out what they really should get, keeping in mind that they're moving around a ton and all that stuff weighs, you know, more than you would think. And especially if you're lugging it around all day on your shoulder. I mean, I can't tell you how many days I've had where my shoulders just ache at the end of a day on the road because I'm, I've been carrying this big camera. So what do you really need and what do you maybe not need if you are going on 
you know, the normal trip to Europe or Iceland or, uh, you know, maybe even something like Africa. I mean, even then taking that whole kit could just be kind of exhausting. So help us figure out what's essential there. So depending on the trip you're taking, that's going to kind of dictate what lens you bring. I've, I've personally got a macro lens. I can count on one hand how many times I've used it. It's a beautiful lens. The photos it takes are phenomenal. So I haven't sold it yet, but I can tell you I use it very rarely. Um, so that's not one you probably need. Um, you need a good everyday lens. So something like a zoom range of 24 to 70 would be great. Or I know a lot of the kits for that Canon ADD have a 24 to 105. That's great because it runs basically a little bit of a wide angle as well as some zoom. It's not going to go as tight as say a 70 to 200, which mm -hmm. is great for portraits. Or if you're shooting wildlife, that's a really good one. Um, but if you're just shooting kind of every day or you're going to Europe and you just want some street photography and you just want to bring the one lens with you, a 24 to 105 is a great option. Um, if you're shooting a lot of uh, interiors, say you're going to Europe and you want to really get the cathedrals and, and you want to capture as much of that as possible, a wide angle lens is going to be the best for that. So something like a 14 or a 16 to 35 is going to be your best bet. So um it really depends. If you're shooting wildlife, get that 70 to 200. You're going to be really glad you did. Um, if you're just doing street photography, something like a 24 to 105 or 24 to 70 is a really great option. Um, and then if you're going to be shooting a lot of interiors or landscapes and you want to really get that expansive landscape, a wide angle is, is great. So um, those are the three that I use the most. And depending on what the trip is, I'll bring one or two of those. So those are the lenses. Um, look at a wide angle and every day and a zoom. And depending on what you're doing, you know, pick one or two of those. Always, always, always have a lens filter on. A UV filter isn't going to um, do anything to your images as far as, you know, image quality. Um, but you want to make sure that your glass is protected because if you drop that camera and it chips the glass, that lens is, you know, damaged and it's pretty costly to get those fixed. So mm -hmm. always the second you buy a lens, put a, put a filter on it. Um, you're definitely going to want a neck strap because you want it either for your shoulder or your neck, but you don't want to be holding your camera the whole time because, you know, if you fall or trip, you don't want to end up dropping it. So, um, a strap is huge. And then depending on what you're shooting again, um, I almost always bring my tripod. I don't always use it, but it is nice to have, especially if you're doing any sort of night photography, you have to have it. Mm. Um, it's just, it's, it's great to have it on you. Um, just so that you're not losing image quality because you're shaky or you're moving, you know, the tripod kind of holds it steady and make sure your images are tack sharp. So tripod, you know, is, is a good idea, but not absolutely necessary. Next strap and filters absolutely are. Yeah. And one secret that I think a lot of people don't know is that a lot of cities have a local camera shop where you can actually rent a piece of gear. So yeah. if, if you're just going on one trip, uh, you can rent a lens that you don't want to buy. You know, you don't want to spend a thousand dollars for this lens, but you might be able to rent it for a hundred bucks yeah. for, for that week long trip. And it kind of solves that problem of how much am I going to invest for this one time? Absolutely. I mean, especially if you're looking at those zoom lenses, because zoom lenses are great, but you don't use it a ton. And I will say those are very, very heavy lenses. So you talk about your shoulder hurting. I mean, I feel like, you know, my neck is broken by the end of the day when I'm wearing my zoom lens. So, um, some of those zoom lenses, depending on what you get, the really aggressive zoom lenses 
can be upwards of $13,000. And I don't know Holy about cow. you, but I don't have $13,000 <laughs> laying around. So um, there is a local camera shop here that when I went into Yellowstone and I wanted a really, really good zoom lens beyond my 70 to 200, I wanted one of the like super zooms, but I'm not going to spend that kind of money. I was able to just rent it and, you know, get the photos and, and kind of play around with the lens, but not be committed to, you know, spending as much as a car would cost <laughs> to take pictures with that lens. So, um, a lot of our listeners are going out with people on tours. Uh, they own tour companies or they travel, uh, with people on tours. Touring is a great way to see stuff. There are some drawbacks though, in part because you're time limited. Uh, you have, you mentioned a, a cathedral in Europe, you might have 30 minutes there. And during those 30 minutes, a docent is going to talk and there's going to be 40 or 50 people milling about, and it might be the middle of a day and a cloudy day. So the light is not great. So what would you tell people to do to optimize their photos when they are not in control of so many things? They don't know what time of day they're going to be there. There's no controlling the light there. You can't control who's going to be walking in the middle of your shot, how crowded it's going to be, what the weather's going to be like. You know, if I got one shot at that cathedral or one shot at the Taj Mahal or one, you know, half morning in Yellowstone, how do I make the most of it? First and foremost, take a ton of pictures. Uh, you know, don't just take the one and turn around and, and, you know, I will tell you on trips, I usually take about 3000 photos and I whittle that down to maybe 150 that I actually use for anything. Cause a lot are blurry or somebody walks in your frame. So, um, first and foremost, take a ton. So you've got a ton to choose from. And a lot of the ones that I've fallen in love with from my travels are ones that were kind of unexpected and I didn't really anticipate taking. So, um, take a lot. And then editing is your friend. So if you're shooting on a DSLR camera, make sure you're shooting in raw. Raw is going to give you the ability to edit pixel by pixel. Whereas a JPEG, although it takes up less memory on your memory card, um, it's basically the camera or your phone trying to decipher what the image is. So it's trying to say, okay, I think these are greens. I think these are shadows. Whereas if you're shooting in raw, you have controlled down to each pixel in your editing. Um, so shoot in raw, you can actually only uh, also do that on your phone. So make sure if you're on a trip and you're really trying to great, get a great image um, of a certain place or, you know, object or, you know, tourist attraction, make sure you're shooting in raw. So you have more um, ability to edit that image. And then if you're shooting on a camera, I always um, edit in Lightroom, which is a software that you can purchase or pay a monthly fee for. And that has tons of editing capabilities to help with lighting that might be off, to get rid of objects, to help increase um, the colors that may have been lost because of lighting situations. Um, or, you know, even when you shoot, you always lose a little bit of the color. So I always kind of pull that back a little bit. Um, on your phone, there's several apps that can help as well. Um, some are free, some are not. The ones that I'm going to tell you about, if there is a fee, it's 100% worth it. So go get it. Um, Touch Retouch is a great app that you can use to get rid of objects or people photobombing you. Maybe they walk through your shot or there's a road mm -hmm. cone or you've got you know, a power line that you want to get rid of. Um, that's a really quick and easy way to do so is with, through that Touch Retouch app. Um, Snapseed is my go-to for editing. You can do just about anything, cropping. Um, there's a brush tool. So if you need to increase exposure on just one area in your photo, you can do that there. There's filters and, and different things you can do there. So that's a great app. Um, light distortions. This is if you just want to have some fun with your photo. You can add light hits. So you can add, you know, sun 
kind of beams coming in, which looks really neat. Mm. Um, you can add, you know, filters, mists, I mean, all kinds of different effects. So that's a really fun one if you're trying to be a little more artistic with your photography. And then another app that isn't editing necessarily, but it helps you if you can plan your shots is TPE, which stands for the photographer's ephemeris. And that basically shows you when sunrise and sunset is going to happen as well as what direction. So you have your app pulled up and it shows you where the sun or or moon or anything is going to rise and set. So it really helps you predict some of that. Um, I can tell you I've used that a ton and that's been extremely helpful. So um, using those apps or Lightroom to edit after the fact can save photos that would otherwise kind of, you know, lose their luster. Um, but a, a couple editing tips. First and foremost, keep it natural and don't overdo it. Something that is such a pet peeve that I see people do all the time is they go nuts with the saturation. And so mm-hmm. suddenly these reds and yellows and greens are, you know, neon and don't look natural at all. And it's very obvious that that photo has been edited. So, um, you know, increase the saturation a little. I never go past 10 points. Usually there's a hundred point scale. I go to like 10 just to give it a little boost, but you don't want to go nuts with that. Um, something else you want to make sure you don't go too crazy with is your clarity. Um, you know, clarity and detail, if it's increased too much also makes it look very, very fake. And then if you're shooting, try to be conscious of where your horizon is when you're shooting. But if you get it a little off kilter, just go in there to your cropping and usually you can level out the horizon. And that really helps with your photos because if the horizon's not level, it can look a little janky. Well, and thinking of those travel business owners listening, the, the small business owners especially, there's nothing to be ashamed of if you go on the trip and like Stephanie sh- said, uh, you, you shoot 3,000 images and then you pick out your favorites and then you outsource the editing because trying to start learning photo editing from scratch is there's a huge learning curve. So, you know, call up a, a graphic designer or a photographer, you know, or for that matter, you know, go go on Upwork or Fiverr or something and you know find somebody who really knows how to do that. It's not going to cost you very much money and it will save a ton of time unless you just enjoy the stuff and then by all means, you know, learn how to do it. But, uh, but yeah, it, it doesn't have to, you know, dominate all your time. Uh, thinking about uh, travel business owners, um, many of them are taking photos specifically for marketing purposes. They're going to post them on social media. They might want to put it on their website. They might want to put it in a brochure, some other marketing channel. So what specifically can you guide them to do to make, uh, to, to take photos that will basically work for sales purposes? Like this is a photo that is going to get people's interest and make them pick up the phone and call you or click through, uh, to make that reservation. Absolutely. So you want your photos to be engaging and you want your audience to see themselves in that photo. So Mm. that's why the group shots of people standing in front of things isn't really great. I mean, it looks like fun, but people can't really picture themselves there. So that's why getting creative and taking shots where maybe it's from behind the person and they're looking at whatever the object or, you know, architectural wonder is. And that way people can kind of place themselves in that photo. Um, You also want to take a variety of photos. So again, not just the group shot in front of something, but, you know, take engaging photos of your food. And that's not just you holding your camera over the plate and taking a picture, but, you know, getting it from the side, trying to see the ambiance of not just, you know, the food itself, but also the restaurant. Um, So take photos that bring in the details of a trip, not just people on the trip. So, you know, mix it up between pictures of, you know, 
people within the landscape, you know, worked in in a natural way, as well as pictures, you know, close up or far away of different, um, you know, things that they can anticipate seeing on that trip or food that they can anticipate having or the accommodations and maybe special, you know, things about the accommodation. So not necessarily just a picture of the room, but, you know, there was a hotel in Singapore, um, the Marina Bay Sands that I remember when I walked in their bathroom, they had this beautiful display of, you know, the different soaps and it was very kind of personalized and, and cute and really stuck out. So I took pictures of that because that was something that, you know, was different and kind of set that, that establishment apart. So think about things that, you know, you're impressed with or that, you know, stay in your mind after a trip. And those are the types of things that you want to take photos of in a really engaging way. Yeah. uh, Great ideas there. Well, um, before we let you go, where is a good place for people to find you, follow you, connect with you and see some of your awesome photos? You can just go to my website, which is the scenic suitcase.com. Um, in that there's different areas you can search by location, which is just under the travel heading, or there's a photography heading. And most all of this information is there from, you know, the best apps to use for photography, as well as, you know, shooting tips. There's a kind of beginner's guide to aperture shutter and, um, ISO. So if you have a DSLR camera and you're not quite sure where to start, that's a great article to read about that. If you want to read those, learn about composition tips, you know, that's, that's a good place to start. Well, we have a few final questions that we ask every guest before we send them on their way. And these are just for fun. So no pressure. Uh, first of all, when you book a flight, do you choose a window seat or an aisle seat? Always a window because I do not get up in a flight. <laughs> I tend to camp <laughs> out and, um, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, three hours or 14 hours. I'm, I'm there and in it to win it. So I don't like to be disturbed. I just take a nap and, and wake up wherever I'm at. <laughs> Wow. So what's one thing in your carry-on besides your camera, obviously, what's one thing in your carry-on that you wouldn't travel without? Oh gosh. You know, I did this before COVID and I continue to do it, but, um, bringing sanitizing wipes in my carry-on to wipe down my seat area. Cause I can tell you getting sick on the plane when you arrive at your destination is not fun. I spent the majority of my time in Prague in bed with just a horrible cold. Mm. And I know it came from the guy behind me who was coughing the entire flight. So I like to keep the area clean. And, and so I've, I've done that before COVID and now people don't side eye me and give me the weird (laughs) look they used to. (laughs) Yeah. Now they're asking to borrow it, right? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So if you had a free airline pass in a week with nothing else to do, where do you think you would be headed next? Oh gosh. I, I love Paris. I know it's cliche, but I love Paris. So I would probably start there and I would jump on a train and just kind of bounce around Europe. Yeah, that sounds great to me. Okay. And finally, what's something you have seen or done on the road that you wish you could go back and experience again with someone you love? Sure. There is a hotel in Monument Valley called the View Hotel where all the rooms face the beautiful landscape there that you see in postcards. And so I would love mm. to wake up at sunrise with my fella and be able to look at that. I went with a friend years ago and it was very striking. Love to take him there too. Yeah. There are some things that are fun with friends, but it's a whole other level when you're there, you know, with someone who's extra special. It really is. Yeah. 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 And on a full moon, being able to see that was, it was just stunning. I was thinking, God, I wish he was here to see this. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds wonderful. Stephanie Miller, it's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Stephanie. I hope you got a lot out of it. I took a ton of notes. And as I mentioned, I am going to post all of those in the show notes for this episode. But there are a few things I want to make sure that we review uh, on the air here so that you don't miss them because I think they were so important. One thing that Stephanie talked about was taking good group photos, which is something that we all do when we travel in groups. And uh, she had this to say. She said, it's really about the environment, the landscape, a piece of architecture or art you're looking at. That should be the focus of your group photos. She said, then you want yourself or others in the photo to engage the person looking at the photo so that they can envision themselves in that place as well. Now, I thought that was really insightful advice from Stephanie. I know I've been guilty of taking, oh, let's say less than creative group photos on a trip. I'm sure you have too. Uh, But I love her point that uh, these photos are really not about the group. They're about the place that you're visiting. And you put the group in there uh, to add some reference and to invite the viewer of the photo in so that hopefully that person will want to come on the road with you again in the future. Another piece of advice Stephanie has uh, that I thought was really insightful was she said, if you are at all uh, interested in improving your travel photography skills, that you should sign up for an online photography course. She said, they're really not that expensive. Uh, They'll teach you the basics of how to use your camera, composition, and editing tricks. And she said, that way you can be prepared for your trip. You know, again, I think this is super important. I've seen lots of people uh, plan a big sort of bucket list trip. And as part of the preparation for the trip, they go out and buy a fancy camera. But they then don't do the work to learn how to use the camera. And what they end up with is, well, photos that they probably could have taken on their phone for a lot less money. But if you will spend just a little bit of time and cash on one of those online photography courses, it will help you immensely so that you'll be able to enjoy your time on the road and enjoy that great new camera that you bought for the trip instead of just being perplexed and befuddled about how it works and why your photos are not as good as you expected. Finally, uh, when Stephanie was talking about taking photos that work well for travel marketing, she said, you want your audience to see themselves in the photos. So get creative, take a variety of photos, take engaging photos of your food Get it from the side. Try to get the ambience of the restaurant, not just the food itself. You know, I think this, again, is really important because uh, we're hearing more and more that the kinds of photos that are really impactful in our marketing aren't necessarily the super slick images shot by professional photographers somewhere, but they're photos that look like they were taken by you on your trip because the authenticity of those photos really speaks to potential clients. So it really behooves you to find ways to get creative with your own photos you're taking on trips because those are going to be the images that sell best. So give yourself some time on the trips, get creative, and hey, if you take some bad images, you don't have to use them, but you will have them at your disposal and you never know when you're going to find a gem among that batch. Great tips there from Stephanie Miller. Well, we talked earlier about the price of travel and how that's creating challenges for the tourism industry. And uh, I have actually flip-flopped on my views about some important things in travel pricing. And we're going to talk about that today in the Hot Minute. Yeah, that's right. The Hot Minute is the portion of the show where I take 60 seconds to give you my unfiltered views on an issue impacting tourism every day. And today I'm going to tell you why I am changing my thoughts on how to price tours. So let's put 60 seconds on the clock and get into it. 
For a few years in the late 2010s, I encouraged tour companies and travel planners to stop selling tours on price and instead focus on delivering high value experiences that people would be happy to pay a premium for. I still think that was the right advice at the time, but of course a lot has changed since then and among the most difficult changes is that travel has become much more expensive. Rising costs are certainly challenging group travel planners, but you know what? That also creates an opportunity because as consumer travel prices rise, groups can leverage their volume buying power to get some discounts that aren't available to the general public. Now, I believe that travel prices right now are unsustainably high and that many people are going to have to make some tough decisions about their travel priorities over the next few years. So I'm officially changing my position. Your messaging right now should be all about value. And if you can find a place to save a few bucks here and there, have at it. That's the way I see it anyway. Of course, as always, you are welcome to disagree with me and we can still be friends. And hey, whether you agree or disagree, I would sure love to hear from you. You can reach out to me at podcast at grouptravelleader.com. I read every email that comes into that address. Let me know what you think of the show. Let me know what questions you have. Let me know your ideas, your feedback. Hey, you never know. Your ideas and questions might just be the topic of the next hot minute. And as always, while you're in the mood to give us some feedback, I would love it if you would go to your favorite podcast player, find Gather and Go, follow us there so you get the next episode automatically and give us a rating, leave us a review. That is also helpful. And I'm thankful to all of you who have done that so far. My thanks as well to Stephanie Miller for joining us. Now, I'm super excited about the next episode of Gather and Go because I'm going to be bringing you some brand new content about cultural trends that are reshaping tourism. Uh, This is super exciting and uh, I believe insightful and helpful information that you are not going to want to miss. Until then, though, remember this. At the end of the day, we are all on this trip together. So let's make it a good one. See you next time on Gather and Go. Gather and Go is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Jewell. Our publisher is Mac Lacey. Danya Simmons is our creative director. Ashley Ricks is our circulation manager and graphic designer. Our sales team is Kyle Anderson and Bryce Wilson. To advertise on the podcast, call Kyle or Bryce at 859-253-0455. Gather and Go is a production of the Group Travel Leader. For more information on our podcast, magazines, and events, visit us online at grouptravelleader.com.